0: These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. Rise and fall. Rise and fall. The kingdoms of Anatolia have been a roller coaster of ups and downs and unfamiliar names. But now we have as king a man whose name may have been Labarna, may have been Tabarna, and would soon be known to history as the I. Finally, we are solidly into the story of the Hittites, and the man usually accounted as their first king is both an exemplar and an exaggeration of what's to come. The exact territory he inherited, or reconquered shortly after taking the throne, is a bit unclear, but included a large chunk of central and eastern Anatolia, probably including Kanesh, Kassara, and the cursed ruins of Hattusha former capital of the once-dominant Hattian kingdom. This last had been burned to the ground by a vengeful king, Anita, with the promise that the Storm God, chief of all Hittite gods, would exact a bitter vengeance on any who rebuilt upon that site. But... Curse or not, Hattusha was located on one of the most defensible locations in all of Anatolia, with many narrow approaches, seven year-round water springs, and a massive cliff on which to build an acropolis. Anyone who used the plentiful local stone could erect a massive walled city that could well withstand many determined invaders. And so... This king, whose birth name is Uncertain, would rechristen himself Hattushili at the same time that he defied the curse for more pragmatic concerns. Moving the capital from either Kishara or Knesh, it isn't clear which he inherited, to the newly rebuilt city of Hattusha. No lightning bolt descended from the heavens, but plenty of historians see the curse of Hattusha playing out much more subtly through the lifetime of the Hittite Empire. You see, though the city itself was very defensible, it carried with it severe drawbacks that the kingdom will never really overcome. I've posted a map over on oldeststories.net for reference, though honestly it's kind of hard to see the details of Anatolian geography from so far away, so most of this is relying on the word of scholars far more intimately familiar with the terrain than I. Though it had informal roads in all four cardinal directions, and gave a good amount of control over the central Anatolian region of Hatti, where the Hatti people still lived... It was very far away from the major southern trade routes, and inconvenient to access from many important southern routes, such as the mountain passes into Syria. The inability of Hittite kings to directly govern large parts of their empire, owing at least in part to the strategically poor position of their capital, would leave them forever reliant on a network of often disloyal, vassal kings to enforce their will. However, for now, the new king Hattusili rules over little more than a sizable chunk of central Anatolia. And though he was probably already thinking about how he could surpass his ancestors, his first task was to stabilize the home region. There were still rebels in central Anatolia petty kings who had offended his family during the collapse of his grandfather's kingdom. We already know his first target from last episode, for in Hattishili's annals, he recounts particularly the rebellion of the city of Sanahuita during his grandfather's reign. With the call to war sounded, very likely at the end of winter or start of spring, recruitment would begin across this land of Hatti. While hot and dry Mesopotamia may have had year-round campaigning in the more active years, the harsh and snowy winters of Anatolia kept the Hittites at home each year. And so, as the snows melted, men would heed the call of their king and assemble, likely at Hattusha or some other designated meeting point, into a proper army. Generally speaking, we can divide the men who mustered for Hattushili's first campaign into three groups. Smallest but most prestigious are the professional soldiers, the great king's personal guard and elite cadre of full-time warriors. It's unlikely that this number is more than a few hundred at this point, but at the height of the empire, it could possibly have reached as many as 10,000. Passing through the gates of Hattusha, the bulk of the army was made up of the so-called Men of Weapons. These are not full-time soldiers, but men granted lands by the king in exchange for their service in his army, an innovation that originated in Babylon as the Ilkham system. However, just as in Babylon, the problem that these men were needed in both the fields and on the battlefield at about the same time each year proved challenging, and very quickly these militia corps will find themselves compensated in other ways— though still not as full-time soldiers. Given the frequency of Hittite warfare, it seems incredibly likely that the majority of these men of weapons had seen action either under his father or grandfather, and would have generally understood the dangers and patterns of warfare. When the professionals and militia combined were not enough for the great king's needs, a more general levy would be called up, consisting of a large chunk of the region's able-bodied men. This was oftentimes a problem, since these same men would be the ones generally overseeing the country's planting, and later the harvest, and balancing the manpower needs of the Hittites' many wars with the need to keep the fields productive and the people fed was a constant concern. In theory, any shortfalls could be made up with mercenaries, but Anatolia at this point didn't have the wealth of wandering mercenaries that Mesopotamia did, and hired troops were an expense that only the kingdom at its wealthiest and most ambitious could afford. Additionally, later armies would often include contingents from nations beyond the borders of the Hittite Empire, companies from allied and tributary kingdoms locked in a complex web of obligation with the great kings. But in this campaign, the forces involved were likely quite small, certainly no more than a few thousand, if even that, and only men from the core regions would be available. Marching up to Sanahuita, everyone would have known the gravity of this conflict. Sanahuita had been the catalyst for the collapse of Labarna's kingdom, a betrayal of the king's family. More to the point for the rank-and-file man of the army, most of them probably had a recent hardship that they could blame on the violence that had followed Labarna's betrayal— but, as they reached the fortifications of the small northern city, they could see that the walls which had stood in defiance of Hattushili's line for two generations had no intention of yielding now. Though the Hittite army sacked the land surrounding Sanahuita, the walls themselves stood proof against the Lion of Hattusha. Hattushili was faced with a choice as summer drew on. He could either stand fast and hope to breach the walls in a few more months, or he could move on to another target already being eyed by his campaign to crush the rebellious. We will see more about this, but Hittites in general, and Haddushili in particular, tend to lack the siegecraft skills of their neighboring great powers. They have all the components, but what we know of their sieges paints them as disorganized and generally poorly managed. With places to go, and a firm deadline of late autumn to get there, had left two small garrisons to harass the town, but otherwise abandoned the siege of Sanahuita. The very first battle of the great Hittite hero gets chalked up in the loss column. His next target, a bit west and north along the Black Sea, is the town of Zalpua, legendary home of the thirty incestuous siblings. The entire town seems to have had a cultural stigma attached to it, for while sexual taboos are enforced in many cultures, few throughout history have taken them quite as seriously as the Hittites. More to the point, however, they had also joined in the rebellion against Hattushili's grandfather, and seemed to have done particularly well for themselves since independence. What was different between Zalpua and Sanahuita is unclear. But when this city was assaulted, it fell in short order to the Hittite army, and men hungry for plunder to make up for their lost agricultural wages that year plundered the city hard. After taking the city's gods, Hattashili ordered Zalpua burned to the ground. This was not the end of the city, and Hattuschili’s claim to have destroyed the town utterly seems a bit overstated, given that we will see them in the future, but surely this was a bad time for the Zalpuans in any case. Though one battle was at best a draw and the other a savage victory, Hattuschili’s first campaign season proved to be fairly significant strategically. With the taming of these two cities, the Hittite homeland was safe for the time being. The plunder helped to feed the newly rebuilt Hattusha, and the captured gods were added reverentially to the already growing list of deities maintained in the temples of the capital and nearby holy sites. All in all, the great king could be visibly seen by all as having a soundly established kingdom. But of course, there was nothing here that Anita and Labarna hadn't done before him. And the lessons of history had taught Hatusilli clearly that it wasn’t enough to simply be established. he had to go beyond that. And in fact, he had a role model in all of this fueling his ambitions to surpass what any Anatolian king had done before. Indeed, the mocking words of the greatest ruler the Near East had ever seen appeared to have rung in Hattuschilli’s ears. "'You who would be my equal, go and conquer all the places I have conquered,' cried Sargon of Akkad in one poem that popularly circulated through the Hittite kingdom around this time." I have been a bit sparing on dates up to this point. The truth is that we have no real idea when the previous rulers or events happened. But with hattu we can finally start putting numbers to things and comparing them to events in other parts of the Near East. Something which will become much more important as the Hittites join the club of nations that will characterize the Late Bronze Age. And so, as a new army gathers and begins to head south. We can say pretty confidently that the year is approximately 1640, give or take a decade. A bit over a century has passed since Hammurabi ascended to the realm of the gods, and Babylon is well into its great golden age. Egypt, meanwhile, though they have played almost no role in the story thus far, is beginning to push back against their Hyksos invaders. And while I don't intend to tell the Egyptian story in this podcast, Dominic Perry's history of Egypt is doing that far better than I could, the coming New Kingdom will, for the first time, play a major role in Mesopotamian politics fairly soon. And most importantly, In Syria, the now 200-year-old Yamhad kingdom, based around the truly ancient and still-standing city of Aleppo, controls nearly everything west of the Euphrates River. This includes some lucrative trade routes, impressive cities, and resource-rich lands. But as mentioned some time ago on this podcast, Yamhad by now had been suffering from an enduring internal conflict for quite some time. A king of Yamhad had given birth to two sons, and was suffering under the optimistic delusion that he could devise a way for them to share the power of the kingdom without breaking it up. When that king died, the two brothers fell into fighting, but in order to respect the father's wishes, the younger brother was given the city of al in the western portion of Syria. Technically, he was a vassal of Aleppo, but in practice the two halves of Yamhad watched each other warily for quite some time. Almost certainly, Hattu Shili was aware of the political situation in Syria as his army marched through the main passageway from Anatolia to the Levant, the famous Cilician Gates. There was no way that his relatively small army could compete against the unified armies of Yamhad, but if he were to strike at disloyal Alalach, located along a major trade route from the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, then the great king gambled that he could get away with something big. A Hittite army specialized in surprise attacks and lightning raids, and this force was no different. Descending upon Alalach before they could even call for help. Or perhaps the stubborn pride of the younger branch of the dynasty prevented them from calling their nominal overlords. Whatever the case, the city of Alalach was plundered and destroyed in record time. A major wealthy city wiped off the map without preamble or hesitation the Hittite army and their substantial baggage train faded off into the northeast, out of Yamhad territory, just in case reprisals from the Syrian dynasty were on their way. As far as we can tell, no attempt to catch the Hittite army was made out of Aleppo, a fact that still puzzles historians and perhaps attests to the depth of the distrust between the two halves of the dynasty. But Hattu was not finished with this campaign yet. So long as there were months remaining, he fully intended to use them. Winning victories and bringing home plunder were important for morale and the economy, but more importantly, they had a powerful legitimizing effect on his kingdom. Already, he was far afield of where any previous Anatolian king had gone, demonstrating to his many vassals that he truly deserved the title of great king. And so while the army was out, he targeted three cities to the north of Yamhad, what we would consider to be north of the modern Syrian border, in the middle ground between the Syrian desert and the Turkish highlands. This region was dominated by Hurrians, a currently disunified ethnic group, and some of the cities were nominally aligned to Yamhad, though probably not under its direct control. Hatushili's army marched against three cities— Warshua, Ikakali, and Tashinia, and in all three cities he was victorious. However, here again one city is able to withstand the initial shock of the first assault, and the Hittites are forced to do something that they seem to be not very good at, laying a protracted siege. There exists an account from the city of Warshua, called Urshu in Akkadian, recording what is probably this siege from the point of view of the defenders. While some sources call it legendary or literary, it seems grounded enough that we can probably take it as at least based in fact, and if there has been some distortion to make the Hittites seem even less competent than they really were, the historical record will at least confirm for us that they sometimes had trouble in this area. The whole thing is surprisingly long and well intact, but some choice parts include, Thus said the king, When the city comes to ruin, an offense will have been committed, a sin brought about. The king's nobles answered, We will give battle eight times. The city will indeed come to ruin, but we will eradicate the offense. The king approved of this, but then they broke the battering ram. The king was furious. His face was unpleasant. They are always bringing me foul news. May the storm god wash you away. You shall not continually slack off. Construct a battering ram in the Hurrian style and let it be put in place. The king of the story then continues with instructions on what else to do. But the loss of a battering ram, apparently through unskilled handling, would have been a major loss. While it might seem to us that something that is essentially a giant log would not exactly be a linchpin of a siege operation, that is in fact exactly what it was. You have to remember that trees of great enough size to serve as battering rams were quite rare, and once one was cut and properly prepared, it would enter the nation's strategic arsenal. Back in Mesopotamia, the campaigns of Shamshi-Adad, Hammurabi, and the other conquerors of his age were constantly considering the logistics of where to transport the small handful of rams available to each kingdom, potentially as few as three or four for even a major player. To break the ram was a big deal. Fortunately, Hattishili is close enough to the best forests in the Near East that he can send out an expedition to the city of Hashu and expect them to return eventually. But until then, the entire siege operation, involving perhaps thousands of men, is on hold. You can see why he is furious. A bit later on, the writers of this tale give a poignant account of the disconnect between the Hittites' self-proclaimed ferocity and their actual actions in the siege. General Sanda brought a report to the king, to which the king replied, Why have you not given battle? Do you stand on chariots of water? Have you yourself turned to water? Have you taken revenge? If you had fallen on your knees before him, you would have certainly killed him, or at least have frightened him. But now you're engaged only in hesitation." The son of Laria and Laria himself, while inactive, sang songs of the war god Zababa. But now we have clogged the threshing floor with garbage. We have puppies wearing helmets. We've brought a spindle but are somehow carrying reeds instead of a thread. Last year, General Tuthalia engaged in hesitation. And now you have engaged in hesitation. After this tirade, the king fired up the troops and had them shouting that they would burn the city to the ground, but as the account continues, while they did nothing to the city, many servants of the king were hit, and many died. The king became angry, and commanded the guards to watch the roads and made sure no one got Ionor out. The guards then replied that the king should not let his heart become troubled, since they are on constant watch but soon enough a spy from inside the city got a report out that the messengers from a number of allied cities had been in and out multiple times in the last few weeks. The king again grew angry, but his rant in response to this cock-up is lost with the end of the tablet. The exact details may be literary inventions, though I do like to think that We have puppies wearing helmets is a direct quote from Hattie and I will continue to believe so even if it probably isn't true. Still, we can see that in this litany of ways a siege can go wrong, that the Hittites at least had a reputation for being bad at this sort of thing. And if their siege of Warshua really did take six months running into the winter, then it would have put the entire army and all their precious cargo at risk to the hazards of the Anatolian winter. But, however they may have struggled in the back half of his first Syrian campaign, in the end all three of their targeted cities were sacked, pillaged and torched, the spoils brought home to Hattusha in what must have been the largest hall any Anatolian king had ever brought home. But along with the new fortune came a wind of ill fortune following close behind, for they would soon come to find out that sacking Hurrian cities was not quite as consequence-free as attacking the vassals of Aleppo. Shili was not one for resting on his laurels, and in the following year he again set out early in the springtime. This year his target was not in the east, but in the west. Bordering his kingdom was a loose collection of states that were all nominally the vassal of a kingdom called Arzawa, one that may well have looked a fair bit like the early Hittite kingdom, rising and falling as generations passed. This campaign seems to have been less about wealth, since southern Anatolia could hardly compare to wealthy Syria, and may have been either a response to aggression on the western front in previous years, or just a naked grab for territory. However, while he was in the initial stages of the assault, rounding up the enemy's cattle and sheep, a messenger arrived in the army camp that must have sent a chill down the great king's spine. Everything was gone. Nothing but Hattusha remained of the Hittite Empire, and even that was likely to go soon. Hattushili's invasion force had denuded the already underpopulated Anatolian heartland of fighting men, leaving the kingdom completely defenseless to an outside invasion. In this case, it was a strike force of an unknown amount of Hurrians, taking advantage of the Hittite weakness and seeking vengeance for the destruction of three Hurrian cities the previous year. We don't have a clear sense of what was lost, or how deeply the Hurrians struck the official Hittite records on which we mostly rely are loath to discuss losses, but however bad the physical impact was, it paled in comparison to the psychological aspect. The great king held relatively little land himself, relying almost exclusively on a massive network of vassal lords, like the pre-Hittite kingdoms we saw last episode and these vassals had already seen this movie before, at least twice, and probably more. A conqueror goes around, but at the first spot of trouble, everyone revolts and the kingdom collapses. They needed to get out while the getting was good, lest they be pulled down by a sinking ship. Only those lands personally under the king's rule, Hattusha and the surrounding farmland, remained loyal, and the king with his army in foreign lands was out of position to do anything. Immediately abandoning his Arzawa campaign, still in its infancy, Hadashili marched his force back to Hattusha. The Hurrians pulled back as soon as the great king's army arrived, no doubt carrying a train of plunder behind them. But though the invaders offered no solid resistance, the damage had been done, and this season would need to be dedicated to putting down rebellions. First thing to do was call up more troops. Though he'd likely called out all his professional soldiers and much of his trained militias, now all the militias and a fair number of civilian levies would need to spring into action. With the orders given and a new round of prayers offered to the gods, Hattushili marched out, trusting in the reinforcements to catch up to the main army soon enough. Detachments were dispatched to ensure that the land of Hatti, the central core of the empire, was completely secure, but the great king himself was anxious to move south. His first stop, as he crossed the Marasantia River, more famous in classical times as the Halas River, was a walled town called Nanassa. Hatishili announced that he was the great king and the ruler of Nanassa With an army at his back, Nanassa immediately threw open its gates And proclaimed him to be the true king under the sight of the gods. The Hittite troops marched in completely peacefully and the city was restored to the kingdom without any repercussions. His next stop was a town called Olma, and as the Hittite army approached the gates, if anything larger than it had been at Nanassa, the call for peaceful submission to the great king was repeated. The man of Ulma, however, was either more proud or more foolish than the man of Nanasa had been, and refused the offer. Not only did he refuse, he gathered the men of the city for an assault beneath the walls of Ulma. He may have judged his prospects for a long siege to be unfavorable, he may have had a comically overinflated sense of his own military strength, or he may have simply wanted to go down swinging. Whatever the case go down he did, or at least his army. The Hittites repeated their demand, though this time Ulma wouldn't be getting off so easy. The Ulmans remained unbowed, and another civilian levy was raised, only to be crushed again under Hittite sandals. When the city again refused surrender, Hattushili and ancient custom dictated that they had run out of strikes. An assault was ordered on the now badly diminished walls, and the overrun city was pillaged, burnt to the ground, and, like Anita at hated Hattusha, the grounds were sown with weeds. One more city on Hattushili's tour refused the great king's orders, Salashua, and, like Olma, it was annihilated as an example. This was all, in a sense, pretty standard. A city that resisted a siege could expect a harsher punishment, This had been an unspoken rule of civilization since at least the Akkadian Empire, if not before, and hattu very dramatic example of both his ability to retake rebellious towns and his determination to distribute mercy or vengeance fairly led every other city that had rebelled to be brought back into the fold peacefully, and with no recorded repercussions. Everything south of the land of Hatti had been pacified in a single campaign season. The North, however, was a different story. The timeline on some of these events gets a bit hazy. Our sole written source for a lot of it is Haddishili's own annals, which cover only six of his perhaps 30 years. But it isn't clear at all that these are six consecutive years. Though it's presented as though it is year after year, and it seems likely that at least the most recent two years that we've just looked at were indeed consecutive, There's reason to believe that these represent highlights from his many storied years of conquests. Still, it could well make sense to assume that the year after he subdues the south, he again musters an army, since it appears most Hittite kings spent the majority of their years on some sort of campaign. This time, his target is a revenge match. He needs to show the entirety of eastern Anatolia, who in his reckoning are all rebels against either Hattusili himself or his grandfather Labarna, that there is no one, no one beyond his reach. And to do that, he needs to return to the site of his first battle and his first defeat, Sanahuita. The northern city was no less well-defended than it had been on his first go-around, but this time hattu had cleared his calendar of other engagements. He would park his army here for six long months, essentially the entire campaign season, to see Santa Huita fall. But finally, fall it did, and hattu seems to have been deeply satisfied from this act of vengeance, later mentioning it on his deathbed testament. Rebellion had consequences, and there was no one left in eastern Anatolia who failed to get the message. Well, no one but the city of Alaha, but they would be destroyed as well in the following year, and submission would come in from the lords of every remaining civilized part of Anatolia. Once again, the Hittite kingdom, both the core lands of Hatti and the vassal states of Anatolia, were firmly established. All this had been a distraction from the Great King's true ambitions, and sometime later, in the very next year, if we take the annals literally, though probably after a bit of delay raiding nearby territories and conquering along the border, Hadu shili was finally able to launch a new campaign, one that would make the world take note of the upstart kingdom. And which would allow Hattushili to go to his grave, having equaled or exceeded the fabled Sargon of Akkad. What these ambitious plans are, however, will have to wait another episode, because the latter portion of Hattushili's life contains enough violence and political intrigue to make even a Game of Thrones fan happy. But the rise of the Hittite Old Kingdom was not just a matter of wanton bloodshed and lordly battles. It was also the beginning of literacy for one of the most syncretic, creative, and unique cultures in the ancient world. The Hittites aren't as famous for their culture as they are for their impressive war record, and perhaps a greater portion of what they wrote has been lost compared to the civilizations of the Nile and Mesopotamia. But what does survive will give us a window into the Hittite mindset, the Hittite culture, and the ideas and concerns of the regular people who make up the bulk of the empire. Credit is usually given to Hattushili for adapting the Naṣili language, the Indo-European tongue of the Hittite ruling class, into cuneiform writing for the first time. Though how much of the cultural activity was actively attributable to him as a scholar-king is, of course, debatable. Either way, as soon as they start writing, we see one of the defining features of the Hittite Empire already in place. A tremendous openness to the culture, stories, religion, and ideas of the people they conquer and come in contact with. And so, starting next time, I'm going to try and mix in the stories the Hittites wrote down and enjoyed in between historical episodes. It will be a revealing window into the mindset of these somewhat obscure people, and hopefully you'll enjoy some of the stories for themselves. We begin with a tale that is tremendously revealing of the Hittite attitude toward the gods and the natural world, one that attempts to answer the question of why terrible things happen and how to act when they do. So join us next time as we take a look at the literary output of the Hittites, with the tale of the Vanishing God. Thank you for listening.